Trigger warning. This week's case deals with the sexual and physical abuse of children. This is the Crimecasters Network with Alicia Sophias and Ronnie Dahl. Two rogue reporters breaking newsroom rules to take you behind the crime scene tape. The crime we're talking about today made international headlines and collectively shocked the world. Alicia, you were the first one in the media to hear about this. Yes, but at the beginning, I didn't know, well, no one knew what this would turn into and that the horrific crime would uncover decades of unthinkable abuse. I want to tell you about the time I stared straight into the face of evil because I was in a room with Marcus Wesson shortly after he slaughtered nine of his children. Children who are often overshadowed by those sensational headlines. On March 12, 2004, Marcus Wesson murdered nine of his children and left their bodies in a bloody pile in the back bedroom of their house. I won't call it a home because it never was for the family. Inside the house at 761 West Hammond Avenue, they endure every type of abuse you can imagine by the hands of their father. He controls every move they make, when they sleep, wake up, talk, what they wear, eat, pray, even what they think, because he is their God and they are his soldiers. It starts at birth when he sequesters the kids from society and only teaches them what he wants them to know. That means... No school, no sports, no friends, no doctors or dentists, no toys, nothing but him and his twisted religious beliefs. When it comes to religion, Wesson begins as Seventh-day Adventist, but then it morphs and he cherry picks things he likes from cults like the children of God, David Koresh, even vampirism. It all comes down to this. Anyone outside of the family They're the bad guys, especially the government or the police. He tells his children they're out to get us. In order to stay off their radar, they move from a shack to an army tent in the Santa Cruz Mountains where no one can hear them scream to below decks and a rotted out boat in Marin County where sunlight doesn't hit their faces for months, sometimes years. And if that condemned boat sinks, well... They don't know how to swim. And they're hungry and scared and tiptoe through each day to make sure they don't wake the monster. And that monster is their father, Marcus Wesson. This all began in the late 60s, a time of peace and free love for most. But in San Jose, California, little Elizabeth Solorio is about to meet the man that will steal her childhood and try to destroy her life. This is going to eventually be Marcus Wesson's wife. Yes, and she is the focus for a lot of people when they first hear about this case. I think most people, Alicia, are going to ask exactly what I asked. Where was the mother during all of this? Same boat here. And in order to understand, you need to hear her story. Put yourself in this little girl's shoes. You just turned eight. Your mom has an affair with a much younger new guy. Your dad finds out and walks out. He's out of your life now. And in steps this new father figure who moves in. He pays a lot of attention to you, like 
a lot. He even comes into your room at night and crawls into your bunk bed with you. It's weird and scary, especially when he starts touching you under your nightgown. But your mom knows he's in there with you, so I guess it's okay. And one day he goes through this mock wedding ceremony with a Bible and all the I do's. And you think it's funny, so you play along. But when it's over, he pulls you aside and tells you, in God's eyes, you two just got married for real. Don't tell anyone, though, because it's our little secret. It's confusing because he gets your mom pregnant and she gives birth to your half-brother. But this whole time, he's telling you, listen, you belong to me. We're meant to be. And in a strange way, it feels nice to be wanted. He tells you you are special. You've never heard that before. At school, you don't have any friends because you're not allowed to talk to anyone, especially boys. Remember, you are his wife, his property. Years go by like this until you are 14 and he gets you pregnant. This is so heartbreaking. Everyone right now, Alicia wants to know, where was her mom in all of this? Yeah, well, she steps in all right, but no one is going to like how. She goes to the county office and signs a consent form so that Marcus can marry Elizabeth. You know, because it's illegal because she's so young. Marcus marries her and she officially becomes Elizabeth Wesson. He moves her away from her family and into a shack. Not that she had a say in anything before, but now she really doesn't. Marcus runs the show completely. And over the next 12 years, she gives birth 11 times. Marcus separates her from her own children so they will not bond with her. And then the torture begins. When she tries to speak up, he makes everyone in the household ignore her. For months, when the beatings get so bad, when the monster comes out, she pleads with him to stop. Then she pays the price. But for the most part, she has to live in a silent hell. For the children, life is even more unthinkable. Days are filled with religious abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. We've talked about the brainwashing, but the beatings are just as intense. If they do something he deems wrong, like for his son, Serafino, who, mind you, is a growing boy and starving, he sneaks into the kitchen to get a spoonful of peanut butter. Marcus tears a cable out of the wall, beats him with it for 20 minutes until he gets exhausted. And that's not it, because a punishment in the Wesson house consists of 30 days of spanks, as they call it. And that's three times a day. And get this, they have to ask for it. If they don't remind him, he adds another month to the sentence. And for the girls, it's worse. The sexual abuse is daily. And he calls the sessions loving. This is so heartbreaking on so many levels. But um, I remember you were on 2020 with the family and the forensic psychologist said, Using that word is really kind of part of his plan because the kids would then associate the word love with what he was doing. It really is, if we look into the history, it's classic mind control. Mm -hmm. And it gets worse because now comes the period where Wesson starts telling them it's time to start having children for the Lord. So he has the same mock wedding ceremony with all of them, 
and it begins. In all, he has seven children with five of his daughters and nieces. And the nieces are in the picture because Elizabeth's sister, who was also abused by Marcus, gave some of her children to him to raise. She was also brainwashed to believe he was God and she was having a tough time in her life, so he swooped in to save the day. And luckily, some of his nieces know something's wrong because they have seen the outside world before and they realize his world is twisted and sick. They know it's not right. So three of the four nieces run away, leaving their two children behind. They don't want to, but they really have no choice whatsoever. But it's not without consequences because he tracks down one of them and stabs her in the chest. She survives, but it's a warning to all of the others. Do not try to escape or else. There is one daughter that spends her days dreaming about getting away. It's Gypsy, and she is somehow different. She always knew her dad was a fraud. She hides it well as a kid. In fact, she goes along with everything for years. She's his star student, actually. But as a teenager, she cannot fake it anymore. And he is on to her. He tries to beat it out of her, but it doesn't work. It only makes her will stronger. And after 19 years of suffering, a small window of opportunity presents itself, and she finally does it. She gets away. Marcus is taking her back to the boat to punish her. She does not think she's going to get out of this one alive. He tells her, pack a bag. He's waiting in the car. But she sneaks outside, runs to a nearby apartment complex, and hides between a washer and a dryer in this little crack for hours. She hears him honking and honking down the street, but he never finds her. The important thing is she's safe for the first time in her life, but the others are not, not even close. Just six months after Gypsy leaves, she hears about a standoff at the house of horrors she just escaped from, and she already knows what's happening inside. What police don't know is that the family has a suicide pact that Wesson ingrained in his kids from birth. If the evil ones, the cops or CPS, try to break up the family, you must go to the Lord. Well, everyone except for him, of course, because his work on earth is way, way too important. Mm -hmm. He keeps a 22 caliber Ruger in the closet for situations like this. And today, he's going to use it. Remember the two nieces that had to leave their children when they left the house? They find out Marcus is about to pack up and move the family again. So they come up with a plan to get their two kids back. They're going to confront their uncle face to face. Now, normally someone may call police to help out in a situation like this, but that could never happen here. They know what he'll do if they involve police. They have to handle this themselves. Sadly, It didn't matter. Someone else called police because they heard the fighting and police showed up. Officers think it's just a domestic disturbance, so they can't legally enter the house. So they wait. The family out front is hysterical, begging them to get in there and save the children inside. But they wait. We're talking hours here. More than two hours later, they call SWAT. And SWAT shows up, but it's 
too late. A couple minutes after they surround the house, Marcus appears at the front door and slowly walks outside, his massive arms half up in the air. His clothing is covered in blood. That's when the officers rush in. Through the dark hallway, past a living room that looks more like a war museum with replica cannons and a line of antique coffins, and into the back bedroom where Officer Eloy Escarreño yells out, Kids, it's safe. You can come out now. But of course, none of the kids would come out. They were in a pile in the corner. After checking for pulses, overcome with horror, Officer Escarreño drops to his knees and prays to God. It's that kind of scene. Each shot in the eye and dead. The victims are between one year old to 25. From youngest to oldest, Jeva, Sedona, Marche, Ethan, Jonathan, Aviv, Ilabel, Elizabeth, but everyone calls her Lisi, and Sabrina, but everyone calls her Brina. In 2005, Marcus Wesson goes on trial for nine counts of first-degree murder and for continuously raping and molesting his children and nieces over the years. His surviving family members have to testify against him, although they are still brainwashed. They're terrified his prophecies of getting out of jail could come true. So his defense argues his oldest daughter, Sabrina, is the one who pulled the trigger because she had gunshot residue on her hands, but it doesn't matter. The jury decides Marcus Wesson is the only person responsible for the murders and convict him. He is sentenced to death and heads off to San Quentin State Prison, where he remains today. There is a change, though. In 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced he was suspending the death penalty for all state inmates on death row, including... Marcus Wesson. Newsom made the announcement on March 12th, which was the 15th anniversary of the Wesson massacre. That did not sit well with the survivors in this case or me. And it especially didn't sit well with the daughter who escaped before the murders. Our emotional interview with her is next. You're listening to Crime Casters Network. I always tell people that I know and I, I've talked about earlier that there was always something different about you, that you always had something deep down that knew what your dad was doing was wrong. You always tried to fight it. Even though you never went to school, you were never exposed to the outside world. How did you know? I just always did. I always knew it was wrong and I always knew that this was not the life I was meant to live or, or any of us and that there was something out there like I, I didn't have to live a life of constant fear and pain and praying every day. Like my, my prayer each morning when I woke up was that I wouldn't get beat that day or that he wouldn't touch me. And that, that's not a life to, to live. And that, that's not, I knew that that wasn't normal, that that's not that all that was out there. Your dad thought he was God, told you he was God, but you knew deep down that God wouldn't beat you, God wouldn't molest you, God wouldn't starve you. Uh, All of the torturous abuse he put you through, you somehow knew that that wasn't God. I knew that that was not the the life that God had chosen for me or also 
my family and I knew that God would not support a person who is doing all, all the bad things, you know, that, that he was doing to us. And so even though he used God for everything that he did to us, I always knew that that was not what God's um, existence or presence was for. From knowing you guys, he was worse than people can even believe. And it's impossible to believe someone could be that evil, but this is the one time where I believe he's worse than people think. I have to sit there and think that actually happened to me. Like, and sometimes I can't even believe it. So I can imagine how other people are not even going to know like the type of person he was. Like his every second, his every, every day of his life, it's like he focused and had a plan to manipulate, to, to um, just tear us apart and to break us down for his own, own needs and his own wants. And it's actually really disgusting. Let me ask you some of these questions that people always want to know associated with your case. And the first one yeah. is, why didn't you run away? Because it's, it's taught in you that you can't leave. There's nowhere you can go. And also, even if you turn to a higher power, he's already taken that higher power and said, it's him. So everywhere you go and you turn, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. There's no support. How are you going to walk? It takes the ultimate amount of strength to just walk out to a person that you are the most fearful of. He made sure that we feared him more than, more than God. We feared the very sight of him would make us like quake in fear. So if you're afraid, how are you going to stand up for yourself or walk out, especially to a person who has oppressed you your entire life since you were born? I still don't know how I mustered up the strength to just walk out with literally nothing. I had nowhere to go. I had no money. I knew nobody. I slept in a hotel one night. I was homeless for months. Like, I still don't know how, how I did it. There, there are thoughts and, or memories that I don't even want to open up or think about because they're, they're so horrible. But living through them at the time, it filled my, my anger to, to be able to, to, to like defy him, you know? And ultimately escape and why I got to meet one of my best friends in the whole world, which is you and uh -huh. uh, be around your family, which is my family. Now, everyone doesn't believe that we're like families. And I'm like, no, it, I don't know how it happened. Uh, I don't know how it happened, but we were supposed to be together for some reason. And I thank God every day that you had the strength to run away that day. Now, mm -hmm. I can't imagine how you feel because I wanted to meet those nine children so badly that I'll never have a chance to meet. And you were robbed of knowing uh, your sisters, your cousins, and I can't imagine what that's like. You know, my, my younger sister, like I really was planning to get, to go back and get her. You know, I can't save everybody but I knew we were inseparable. We spent every single day of our life together. Like we were, we never left each other's sight. So, you know, losing her was very hard on me. It was like, I lost a part of myself and the chance to not be able to go back and, and show her that there's life out there. and There's so much happiness. You know, I just remember being such a happy person for everything that happened to me. It made me, instead of making me angry and bitter, it made me happy, happy that I can like, it was like, 
the only thing I can compare it to was probably somebody who's been in jail for a lifetime and finally gets out and the, the warm sun is on their, their face and they, and they get to be free and walk out and do what they want. I remember just thinking, I don't have to ask to eat. I can actually go and eat whatever I want. I can eat, go buy a hamburger. I can wake up when I want. I, I, no one's going to hit me today. Like, I, I, I just can't even explain. Like, it's so, like, weird. And I wanted to get the chance to, like, show her that, that we can actually walk outside. We can go play outside. We can walk to the store. We can... Like every time I would pay for groceries, I would look at money in my hands and think, wow, I'm actually buying a candy. I'm actually walking down the street. Like it would take me hours and hours to even explain to anyone how every single thing, thing I did in life, like getting up, getting out of bed, I actually can turn on the shower instead of boiling water, putting it in a milk jug. Like everything about my life changed and I wanted to give, to get a chance to show her that, that there was actual happiness. We didn't have to feel sad every day and depressed and hopeless and, and, and angry. You always knew it was wrong, but that didn't change the fact that you knew what he was capable of and you were petrified of him. And I remember even on the stand, you weren't able to speak freely, right? You still had, you still had him in your ear and you were, he was in the room. I mean, he was scary. Like less than like 10 feet away. And to be honest, if, if we could, if we would redo the trial, things would be so different for everybody. Everybody has grown. Everybody knows what a monster and a monster is just not, is not even a, it doesn't even describe him. I, we, there needs to be a new word in a dictionary for a person like that, but things would be so different. Like no one would be even trying to defend him or or everyone was still scared and everyone thought that actually he was gonna get out and if they spoke against him we're gonna be in trouble the climate in the fresno community at that time was crazy i mean mm -hmm. i i remember i was at the post-trial kind of wrap-up for scott peterson when you were giving birth to little alicia and your yeah. trial had just wrapped up and I think the community was just so surrounded with all of these crazy things happening that they didn't know what to think. And it yeah. didn't turn out well for your family. I mean, let's be honest, it, it, was, it was tough. People gave you guys a really hard time. People would treat us like, like we were not victims. And that's horrible because we were the worst victims you could, that could ever exist. Like we, we're babies and grew up until we didn't have a choice. If we did have a choice, we, we wouldn't have chosen that life. And to be beaten and, and held back and, and the rest of our life were, were going to be damaged. We didn't choose that. I think that's the thing where your mom came in. You know, I, I try to explain to people that she was his first victim. She had no voice in the house, just like all of you. She was in the same boat. Uh, he didn't listen to your mom. Mm -mm. No, no, not, not, not at all. Sometimes she would be like a little voice of reason sometimes, like to save us from like getting in trouble every once in a while. But no, he, he made sure that she didn't really have any power.
I mean, she would step in if he was like going to kill somebody, literally. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's about the only time she could stop him. Yeah. And she she would try to step in that other times, but he, you know, he would disregard it. You know, it wasn't really an option for her. <laughs> the last thing I have to ask you is about yeah. the man who sits on formerly what was known as death row at San Quentin. Do you ever think about him mm -hmm. still? Do you think about the fact that he's still sitting there thinking about you guys? I would like him to know what he did because he hasn't realized what he did and the, the ramifications of, of treating people that way, your children, the people you're supposed to love. He hasn't realized that and he's living in this false reality and I need him I want him to get snatched out of it and be set in front of the mirror and show this is what you did. This is the, the consequences of what you did. This is actually who you are. He believes that you guys are still his flock and that you still support him and fawn over him and adore him. And he's living in this world. Now, I have to believe sometimes reality creeps in, whether it be something someone says hopefully, but he's not around Gen Pop, so he's not around no. other people who can, you know, sometimes things happen to child molesters mm -hmm. in prison, but he doesn't, mm -hmm. he's more privileged than that. He's protected. Yeah. I didn't even want him to actually get the actual death penalty. I wanted him to just go to prison and be in general population and live a hellish life of what, how we thought every day. You're going to get beat every day. You're going to get raped. Okay. That's to, to be honest, like, I'm, I'm being honest about it. I did not want him. I actually wrote a letter asking the judge to let him live. And right. I did that for a reason. I didn't do it because I was on his side. I did it because he didn't deserve to be separated and protected and, and have a little tiny room of himself with a TV and letters and, and, um, three meals a day and get to walk around knowing no one's going to ever touch him. And he candy bars. Him. I remember that he was getting candy bars and yeah. I don't know why that struck me so much, but I just was remembering how he starved you guys growing up. What you wouldn't have done for a candy bar when you were a kid, starving, literally starving, digging through the garbage when he allowed you to eat asking mm -hmm. for every bite of food that you could eat and he's sitting in prison eating candy bars and i just don't get it it's or not like the people fair. that actually like put money on his books like people that actually send him money like who can ever send him money like no one should ever nobody in the family no one should he he gets money he gets letters he gets visit he has like um people that actually visit him like there are certain people at certain times of the month that visit him. Like he has a consecutive list of people that he, he has a, a, a social life going on. Okay. Not only does he have a social life, but he got money from the federal government. He got oh, a, yeah, he got a yeah, stimulus he took, check. He took my mom's stimulus check. I'm well, I'm still investigating whether that was fraud or not, but according to your mom, Marcus Wesson was able to claim her stimulus check mm -hmm. also yep. at San Quentin prison on what's formerly called death row. I'm yep. still investigating that right now. I have some calls out. I'm hoping it's not true, but when oh, she called, that's what they told her. Yeah, 
yeah, it's true. Like I, I talked to them. Like it's actually true. He actually collected a stimulus check. He probably bought himself a plethora of candy bars. <laughs> I don't I know. think people know this. Marcus Wesson got a stimulus check. Marcus Wesson is is protected every hour of the day. And he can do basically what he wants in there and live in his own little fantasy world. You mm -hmm. guys never got that chance. He's definitely living in, the in, in his own fantasy world. And, and a lot of people do that. And I know he does it because he created that around him. And whenever he saw a glimpse of it, he would freak out. And I know there was a time where I gave him a glimpse of it and, and he didn't like what he saw. So it's like, I know, I know he's doing that because you, you have to do that and be able to cope with who you are. And, and imagine being him. You're the worst person ever. I feel like that guilt would just instantly kill you. He always said, somebody, someday somebody's going to kill me and I'm going mm -hmm. to be a martyr, but I'm going to come yeah. back and I'm going to, you know, be with yeah, you. Still. Exactly. So exactly. that would just play into it. But I, I firmly believe that he always knew someday he was going to get caught for all of his heinous crimes and that he oh, would yeah. be to death. And so he was just setting all of that up, setting the stage mm -hmm. for you guys to, to still be brainwashed and thank God yeah. you guys all broke out of it. Time does heal a lot and it's just how you deal with things and how you, and just acceptance as well. I had to accept that this, these were the cards that I was dealt with in life. And this is what, what I had to deal with. And either I'm going to, just give up and fail and and just let everything go because of my past or I'm going to move forward and be a better person and do everything I could do in my power to make make them proud you know to basically live for for the ones who didn't get get to live continue the conversation with your hosts Alicia and Ronnie on any of your favorite social media platforms Find us at Crimecasters and let's talk true crime. So that was Gypsy. She goes by Evelyn now. And I know everyone listening to her speak, you would never know what she has lived through. Evelyn got a high school diploma. She went to college. She went to Fresno Pacific University, which is a great school. And she's actually, Ronnie, applying to grad school now to become a counselor. I mean... You want to talk about a survivor and you know this is the part of the show that we typically go off script and take you behind the scenes and talk about the case as we do while we're investigating it but this is different because alicia for you this became very personal and i know a lot of people want to hear your story as well yeah and you know uh, that's the first question I always get. Um, I ended up writing a book with the survivors, but before that we lived together. So I actually lived with uh, several members of the Wesson family for seven years. Uh, they are, a, like you heard, they're a family, my second family. Um, the way that came about was that this case to me, I know we all have one case where it just hits differently. And I have to say, I got to that crime scene and first of all, explain what it's like to compartmentalize. Don't, that's what we normally do as reporters. You've been to so many horrible scenes. And in the beginning, when you come and you start working in a small market, you want the big murder because you know you're going to be the lead. And before I got to Detroit, I used to keep a log and send family members a card 
every year on the anniversary of uh, the death of their loved ones. And in Detroit, you can't do that because you cover so many murders. And from a reporter's standpoint, I can tell you there are several of us that you break down at some point in time and you say, I need a break. But you try to put up that blockade between you and the reality of what you've seen and you've experienced. And we're just reporters. We're not seeing what detectives and firefighters see every day as well. But you couldn't do this in this case. And why not? I don't know, because I'd done it so many times before. You know, you and I worked together in Lansing. We covered some horrible cases. I'd been to some horrible crime scenes before. This one was different. And as soon as I started talking to the family members, I kept having to remind myself, you're a reporter, you're a journalist. This is, you're hired to tell this story and tell the facts of this story. But I kept just losing it. I would go home at night and I can tell you the night this happened, right? Everyone in the media, there was a woman a, a very tough reporter from a competitive station who broke down in tears on during the newscast. Have you, that doesn't happen often. It, it really, it, it, it's hard by the way. It, um, for me, it happened when I, a lot of people were evicted from a home and they were homeless an yeah. apartment building. It's hard. It's, right. it, it's, it's very hard when you're on scene to deal with that and trying to choke back those tears but it's one thing in that moment, but it's the follow through, I think, that we're all interested in. How do you go from that moment to living with them? Right. So for me, it was like talking to Elizabeth. At first, I grew close to the boys and then I met the girls. And it was, you know, back then I was in my 20s. The girls were the same age as me. And I had you know, I would talk to them on the phone and they would ask me questions about my life. And I just remember thinking like, look at what they came through. Look at what they suffered. Our lives were diametrically opposed. We had completely different childhoods. And yet these people were the kindest people I had ever met. And they were truly interested in talking to me and hearing my story. And it started becoming personal on the phone. And then it was Elizabeth that got to me crying, trying to protect her family, the opposite of what she was portrayed by in the media, ironically, <laughs> from, you know, all of our stations. Everyone hated Elizabeth. How could she not protect the kids? And I think now people understand why she was never charged and why she didn't do anything wrong. She spent her life trying to protect her kids, but wasn't able to. So, you know, her voice kept resonating in my head. And I was, you know, a 20-something with big dreams of this media future, being the next Diane Sawyer, and I'm a hard-hitting journalist, but at home I'm crying and I'm sad, and I uh, had an extra bedroom, and I was like, you know, I really believed one night I invited them to come over. They were homeless. Their house was a crime scene. They had been sequestered from the outside world. They didn't have anything, and I'm like, I'm still a person. I called shelters for various reasons they weren't able to take in the family. I'll just say that and put that nicely because there are some places that did not want this family, okay? The community really didn't know what to think. They were afraid of the family. I happened to know that they were the nicest people I'd ever met. I wasn't afraid at all. Looking back, that was naive. <laughs> and the family members had told me that that at one point because Marcus was still running the show, even when they lived with me. So they moved in. I thought it was going to be for a few days. 
we ended up becoming like a family roommates in the future, seven years, love them to death. Um, you know, Evelyn spoke at my wedding. <laughs> so, you know, it's just different. And I guess that's the best way I can say it. It taught me so much about journalism, the media. I was watching the family members at home at night, watching themselves on the news, seeing how it impacts them. And it was totally different than I would have expected. Um, I would have assumed that they just didn't want to see any of it and that they would just tune it all out. But they were very interested in what people were saying. And it hit hard, you know. It, with this, it also kind of sidelined your journalism career. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, after this happened, I obviously violated my ethics. I remember there was a story on the front of the website at um, pointer.org, which you know is like the holy grail for journalists. And I was like, I remember they called me and, and I had to talk about my ethics. And, you know, I it was it was hard because it's like you want to be the best at what you do. And by being the best human I could be, I ended up being a really bad reporter. Now, let me just say this. Times have changed. The public, the community appreciate now um, gonzo journalism, so to speak, or really getting to know the story and get immersing yourself in the story. I obviously didn't think it was like that at the time. I was doing what I felt was right. It didn't feel right abandoning these people. I obviously made the correct decision for myself as a person. I sleep very well at night um, and I wouldn't trade anything to have these people in my life. So um, I did the right thing. But obviously I violated my ethics, which is number one, uh, you can't get too close to a story. And because of that, I was resigned as kind of a fluff reporter for years, which was <laughs> not me, as you know. We've all kind of gone through this. Um, in Toledo, I posed as a prostitute on the streets of Toledo, and that was the first time they had seen that in the city. And I got a lot of backlash. But, yeah, now we do that more engagement reporting mm -hmm. and this, that, and the other. But you don't get the story. Here's it, it. Like, on that, like, no one was looking at that story from the prospect of, the guys buying the sex. Mm. It was all about the women. Right. And they were the victim. It's like, wait a minute. They they wouldn't be doing it if people were out here. And and I got a lot of backlash from that. And that was just the beginning, you know, <laughs> my career. Uh, but with that, though, too, it changed you as a person. Yeah. I mean, I just think that you go through life, right? And so say you're in traffic and like someone cuts you off and normally I would be so, oh my God, you know, listen, you hear don't sweat the small stuff, whatever. Uh, meeting the Wessons is like, if you can survive the absolute worst thing that ever happened and have the best attitude. And listen, I'm not going to say that this has been an easy journey for any of them. It's been very difficult. And, you know, as they were getting back on track, oldest son, Dorian, got cancer, lost his battle to cancer. That was a huge blow. And, you know, one of those times where we all say, that's not fair. He was getting his life on track. Everything was going well. He died from cancer. Marcus Wesson, still alive, eating candy bars on death row. And I know, I know I'm passionate about this because I take it personally. But 
we, as you know, Gavin Newsom has come out again and made another new announcement, which is that death row at San Quentin will be abolished completely and we will make it into this cute and fuzzy rehabilitation center where we can all just, you know, focus on the light and the positive and just live in a very beautiful kumbaya society. You know what I want to say to that? And I can't imagine if I would have been in the media pool while he was making that announcement. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Because I do often wonder, do they consult with the victims? No. Before they make these announcements. They did and not. I'm not saying that some people don't make reform. And I've known people that uh, committed murder. They were in gangs when they were kids. And they've come out on the backside. And they are not only a great member of society, but they're changing lives of those in the inner city because they can connect and relate to them. However, one of the things I also found difficult during this time, and it really didn't get much media attention at all, we have so many people that are sitting in prison on death row or lifers, and they got the stimulus checks. Like, I didn't get a stimulus check. Hello, right. I'm paying for it. Marcus Wesson did, and he stole his wife's also, his yes. ex-wife's. So on top of that, like, uh, uh, people may not know that they got this money, which we're paying for because they're obviously not going to get out and and become you a never productive know. member of society and pay their taxes, but we're paying for this. But on the backside, I know from uh, some prison officials, they fought against it because that money they know is going to be used in some way as a weapon, like you can use it to... Um, you know, fight for cell phones and this, that, and the other. And it it just, you shake your head sometimes. You shake your head. I am nauseated by it. It keeps me up at night now knowing the only light at the end of the tunnel for me is, you know what, Newsom, go ahead. Do away with death row. That's great. Make it a warm and fuzzy, happy playroom. That's awesome. But then put the people who were in death row out in Gen Pop then be brave enough to do that. If you want to get rid of death row, then don't protect these guys. Put them in Gen Pop. I want Marcus Wesson in Gen Pop for one hour. Give me one hour. Give his family one hour and see what happens. If that is truly the governor's mission, then put your money where your mouth is. Let's do that. I want to end this on a little bit of a more positive note. Uh, which is Evelyn is just the most amazing person I've ever met. And I told you she's going to school, applying for school to become a counselor. She has a message for everyone. She says that there were so many warning signs with her family. And she prayed every day that one of those people that saw something strange would tell on her dad and that somebody would show up at her front door to save her. Sadly, People did show up at the front door and deemed everything to be okay. CPS came to the house several times. Um, they were never enrolled in school. I mean, there were so many things. Marcus put on a show with the girls. He would dress them up and walk across the pier with all the girls following like his harem. 
there were so many warning signs. Evelyn wants people to know, just like the Turpin case that happened, we know it's still happening. It's happening today. It could be happening in your neighborhood. She wants people to say something. There are toll-free hotlines. Um, and if you're being abused or you know someone is being abused, you can stay anonymous. You, can, you don't have to worry about your privacy. She says, please make a call. We will put a link to those resources on our social media. And I really worry about that now with COVID mm -hmm. and so many kids have been at home. But with that, next, our two crime genius weighs in and our final closing arguments. It's time to get schooled by the teen sensation of true crime. Here's our resident boy genius with this week's sidebar. Hi, my name is Ryan Custer. I'm an 18-year-old pre-law junior at the University of Texas at Dallas. And ever since I was nine years old, I've been researching cases, attending trials, and pouring over hundreds of thousands of pages of court documents, all in the name of true crime. On today's episode of Sidebar, we're going to be discussing probably the most controversial issue we've talked about, which is the death penalty. I think that there is this perception that the death penalty is a debate everywhere. And factually speaking, it really is not. The United States is the only developed country that still administers it regularly. And basically the only one that still has it on the books. So that being said, that doesn't point to whether or not the death penalty is right or wrong. 55% of Americans do agree with somebody being convicted of murder that they should be sentenced to death. But there is a lot of misunderstanding about how the death penalty is administered in the United States. There is a very strict set of qualifications as to whether or not a crime merits a death sentence. Typically, not only does the crime charged have to be eligible for the death penalty, death penalty, in other words, capital murder in Texas, is what makes it a death penalty eligible case. But being convicted of capital murder is not enough to merit a death sentence. The prosecution always has to put forth evidence that the crime was either so heinous that it's clear the person will present a future threat to society, or they've committed crimes prior to the murder um, that again, clearly presents a threat to society, even behind bars, because the general alternative to the death penalty is life without parole. So keeping that in mind, there are cases that absolutely merit the death penalty. I mean, you look at the cases objectively, and they are so horrible that in other developed countries where there might not be as many people, there's simply not cases of that magnitude. I mean, even for example, in the Wesson case, that is a horrific set of facts that I think you would struggle to find in a lot of the countries that have banned the death penalty simply because it didn't happen there. The United States is a very large, large country. And with 51 independent bodies, technically, including the District of Columbia, there's a lot of factors in play there that we have to look at when we're examining the death penalty. And objectively, there's not an objective answer. It is a personal preference whether you agree with it or not. And that being said, speaking of the death penalty, I have to go work on my criminology class. So I will see you guys for the next episode of Sidebar. Closing arguments. Alicia, the death 
penalty should it be abolished i think we already know where you stand but you have one minute go Okay, I could cite the obvious here, you know, the punishment fits the crime, or it's administered very humanely, too humanely if you ask me, or it's a good bargaining tool for investigators, like we'll take this off the table if you take us to the body, etc. But let's take the situation in California, where a majority of voters over and over again keep supporting the death penalty. Even so, Governor Newsom thinks he knows better than the people he represents. I have friends who have said, why am I even voting if it doesn't matter? I honestly never morally approved of anyone killing anyone for any reason. However, this case changed my mind. Here's why. Because Marcus Wesson still victimizes his family from prison. For years, he sent them messages in code instructing them what to do. I didn't find out about that for a long time. They eventually stopped listening. But then he found another way to insert himself. He called Evelyn from a cell phone from death row. She was so terrified, shocked, she jumped out of a moving car. Thank God she was okay. This man raped and killed babies. That's the brutal truth. He had a fair trial by a jury of his peers. There's no question of his guilt. He was legally sentenced to death. It should be carried out. The world will be a better place without Marcus Wesson in it. I give you 10 extra seconds. I needed it. Knowing <laughs> I needed it. Uh, your connection with the story. So 25 states do not have the death penalty. Uh, Michigan being one of them. And I don't know if you know this, but in 1997, I was working in Gainesville, Florida as a producer, and I got to field produce um, what was then a death penalty case, and it was Pedro Medina. He was being put to death in their electric chair in the state of Florida. They called it Old Sparky. Well, it caught fire and filled the chambers with smoke. And for years... Uh, the electric chair has been put on hold in the state of Florida. So you kind of see these two different sides because there were members of the family of the victim that were there watching this as he was being put to death and uh, talking to the reporter that I was close to as she had to experience this as well. And I think one of the things when we're talking about the death penalty, I'm not opposed to it. But I do think what needs to happen is technology has changed and there has to be scientific evidence that connects people to the crime in which they committed or they have to say, yeah, I did it. I'm guilty. Kill me. And you don't get to die by injection of heroin, which some of them are now requesting because they get to go out on a high. No, you should get a painful death. So with that, I do believe in the death penalty. However, there are innocent people that have been put to death. And we need to make sure that those that are being executed have indeed committed the crimes into which they are convicted of. I totally agree. And, you know, we like to end the show by remembering the, the true people that we are talking about today, which are the nine Wesson children. May they rest in peace. I think about you every single day and the world deserves to know you. We'll see you next week.